Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Scientia Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by Killian Kopsel, co-founder and chief innovation officer of Caption Health, to talk about ultrasound for early disease detection. Killian, welcome to the show. Um, welcome, Heather. Killian, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Caption Health? Yeah, so my background is originally in physics and mathematics, but at that time, so I spent quite a while in, in academia, in neuroscience, theoretical neuroscience, and my goal was to better understand how the brain processes images and information, and then also with this understanding to help creating real-world applications. And so we worked for a while on image analysis and image recognition. And this was at a time when the neural networks weren't really working yet and were a little bit out of favor. And then around 2012, 2013, when the AI and deep learning took off and was finally working, we were the previous startup was acquired and we were really excited uh, about the opportunities to really make a change in all kinds of different industries. And so we were particularly excited about medical applications and medical imaging. And so the vision was that with the help of AI, we wanted to make medical imaging more accessible and give this image understanding that we thought the AI could achieve, give this in the hands of more people. So what does Caption Health do and why is this important for healthcare? So yeah, as I said, we wanted to focus on medical imaging. And so we thought that with this vision of democratizing medical imaging, that ultrasound is a great modality because it doesn't have any, any side effects. And the devices over the last 10, 20 years became much more affordable and, and smaller. And so today you can even get a handheld probe that you can connect to your iPhone and so we realized that even though the hardware was available at much lower cost to many more people, there was a big burden or hurdle to get this ultrasound used by more people because it is actually very difficult to acquire good ultrasound images. And also then once you have acquired an ultrasound image, to understand what you're seeing and to interpret it and, and detect diseases. And we thought if we train an AI to do both of these tasks, to the guidance to a good ultrasound image and the interpretation, then you could make this medical imaging or ultrasound images available to pretty much anyone around the world. So you mentioned two key components, the guidance and the interpretation. What role does machine learning play in, in each of those? Yeah, so that's really the key for this to be even possible is machine learning. So there's basically two tasks and both involve computer vision and understanding. And so the first task is if you put an ultrasound probe on your body, and so we started with cardiac ultrasound. So if you put it on your chest and you see a piece of your heart, then it is really difficult to understand how you have to rotate and move and angle this ultrasound probe to get the image of the heart that you want to see that, that looks at a specific ventricle or a specific valve. And this is learned typically by experts over many weeks, months, and years. 
And so we use machine learning to basically understand the relationship of the imagery and the position of the probe in, in 3D space and then guide the user to the right spot without the user having to understand what they are even looking at. And so that is the first component, this ultrasound guidance. And then once you get to a good image, the device would record automatically the image. And then there's a second task. As a non-expert, you don't really know what you're looking at. And again, we use machine learning to train on lots of ultrasound images with labels of different diseases and conditions to recognize what's going on in the image. And so, yeah, it's really an enabling technology, the machine learning for the application that we picked. What are some examples of the types of diseases you're looking at with ultrasound? The, the interesting thing about ultrasound is you, you can use it on most organs in the body and you can detect a lot of different diseases. And so we focused first on the heart and that is maybe one of the most difficult organs to image because it's moving all the time. But you can see all kinds of different heart diseases by just looking at the imagery. You can see if the heart is not pumping well or if it's enlarged or or if the valve are not closing properly, all, all different kinds of structural heart diseases. And yeah, this is what we focus on first. So is this maybe at the, at the level of classification, you know, in this case, this patient has this condition or not, or is it more locating a particular defect or segmenting out structures or something else, something mm -hmm. else that doesn't occur to me? Yeah, no, a good question. So initially what we thought is, so you can definitely do classification and look for the presence or absence or maybe the severity of, of certain diseases. What we focused on first is that we, we thought if we help the user to make certain measurements of the heart, then the diagnostic part can be left to physicians and we don't have to do this in the AI algorithm because there's a little bit resistance to having the AI make the final decision about a disease state. And so what we did, for example, is one of the measurements is, I mentioned the pumping function of the heart. So you, you can ask what percentage of the blood in your left ventricle is squeezed out with every heartbeat. And so traditionally you would segment the imagery and then calculate the volumes when the heart is expanded and contracted. And you can calculate how much blood is pumped out of the heart. And we used AI or a deep learning algorithm to look at the video clip of the heart and then regress a value, a percentage value of what percentage of the blood is ejected. And that, that's called ejection fraction. And that is probably the most important parameter of the heart. And similarly, you can do this with all kinds of other measurements. There, there are in the order of 100 measurements you can do on the heart, and then which then together give you a good picture of how normal or diseased the heart might be. So the goal of the deep learning algorithm is to come up with these measurements and then mm -hmm. leave it up to the clinician to make decisions based on that. Is that right? Yes. And going back to the guidance piece for a minute, can you give me an example of the type of guidance that those models produce? Is it things like yeah. rotate the probe, go in this mm -hmm. direction? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's exactly right. So there are these six possible dimensions, right? You, you can move the probe in all the three space directions, and then there are uh, different ways of changing the angle. And so that is rotating it left, rotating right, and then angling it in the two other directions. So we have two types of feedback. The most useful and the most important one is something that we call a quality meter. And that just gives you 
a read on how close you are on the right to the right image and it's just a level that goes up and down and basically if you reach a threshold level if it goes up enough if you're close enough then it tells you to hold the probe and to record and by just looking at this one-dimensional gauge parameter you can actually try how to wiggle the probe around is often very fine movements to get to a better quality image but in addition, we have this, what we call prescriptive guidance. And this is exactly what you mentioned. It would tell you, you have to rotate a little bit clockwise, or you have to move the probe a little bit closer to the patient's head and things like that. And then um, as you do that, you can observe that the quality meter goes up. And ideally, if someone reaches the threshold level, their device automatically records the image. I imagine that guidance is also quite helpful for training somebody who's less experienced with ultrasound as well. Yeah, that's true. So as I mentioned, the traditional training takes a long time. And even after the formal training has ended, these sonographers, so these are the experts in ultrasound acquisition, they improve their skills over many years. And we have found that with our guidance, you can, within a couple of hours, you can get someone in the position to record an image. And then if you're not very experienced, there's always this doubt, do I have the right image? Is this the right quality? And so this quality meter really helps for people, even if they're able to get a good image, it gives them the confidence that they arrived at the right image. And so it's absolutely true that it's useful for people who have less experience and are less trained and helps them to uh, it gives them exactly the feedback they need in order to improve. And normally you would require an expert to look over their shoulder and give them the feedback. But with this device, they can train themselves and they get better over time by using it on patients. So what kind of challenges you encounter in working with and training machine learning models on ultrasound imagery? Yeah, so in general, it's I think it's quite similar to training algorithm on natural images. However, there's, of course, a couple of things that are different. One thing is that the ultrasound image varies a lot on depending on the physical property of the person. So if it matters if you're skinny or more heavyweight or if you have certain pathologies, so if you have lung problems, then sometimes that can affect the imagery. So it, it depends really on the patient and it also depends very much on the device. It's still pretty difficult to get a good ultrasound image. And so there are many different manufacturers out there and they provide images of different quality. And in order to train the algorithm to be robust to those variations, you have to use many different devices on many different patients with many different pathologies. And some of them you might only find in a hospital. And so this requires that you work together with a hospital to do these acquisitions. And it's harder to do it you can't just do it in-house with healthy subjects. And that is, I would say, is the main difficulty. And the other thing that we were surprised about is that with ultrasound images specifically, there is the problem that for historical reasons, the images often have patient information in the pixel data. So even though the medical image format, which is called DICOM, would allow you to put all the metadata into different data fields, these images in, in, the, in the past, they were in the pixel image because people would record those with videotapes. And the problem for us is if 
we want to take these kind of images out of the hospital, we have to de-identify them. And so you have to find all these places where there's patient information and remove them from the image, which is a machine learning task by itself. And so this was the first one we had to tackle before we even got our hands on ultrasound images. Yeah, medical images often come with you know, unique and sometimes backwards ways of you know, encoding information that you need to accommodate. You know, there's an example in pathology where pathologists might circle the actual tumor on the slide. And so mm -hmm. if you're training a model on that, your model already knows where to look and you have to get rid of that information <laughs> first. Exactly. Yeah. These kind of labels, you're right. These kind of labels you also find in ultrasound images. So you mentioned a bunch of sources of variation in your imagery from different patients, different manufacturers, different medical centers. How do you go about validating your models across so many sources of variation? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. So the answer is a little bit different for these assessment or measurement algorithms and the guidance algorithms. If you assess an image that is already acquired, this is a task you can do based on imagery that you can find in large image databases in hospitals. This is where you have variety of patients and variety of disease. And you also typically have lots of different devices that are used in, in larger hospitals. And so there, it's just a question of getting your hands on those medical images through a partnership with hospitals and then de-identify them and then follow proper procedures in dividing them into training and then validation data sets. And that is fairly straightforward, the same way how you would do it with natural images and maybe just making sure that these different parameters that matter, like, for example, the body mass index, the BMI of the patient, you, you want to make sure you cover heavy and light patients. And for certain diseases, you want to make sure that they are in your data set. But as I said, that's typically the case in this hospital data sets. When it comes to guidance, it's a little bit more difficult because there is an interaction between what the patient does and how the images look like and what our users, we want to make this available to less experienced users, the images that our users acquire with our guidance, they might look quite different from the images that you find in a medical database that are recorded by experts. We have an iterative approach. We first start during the algorithm development. We have a lot of trial and error and do what we call a prototype study in with in-house with uh, users that um, that we and subjects that we use in-house but then in order to see how it really performs in the clinical practice we we collaborate then with clinics or hospitals to do what we call a pilot study where the actual user tries out our algorithms on actual patients and we see how they perform and then when we reach the proper performance target we have this formal clinical validation study that will support FDA submission. So there's basically several steps and each one of them require working with healthcare providers to get real patients and try it out with them and also get real users. And you have to make sure that the kind of users that you use during testing are the ones that you market the device to later. So the FDA looks very carefully for that. So the regulatory process definitely influences how you validate your models. Are there any other ways that influences how you develop machine learning models? Maybe even thinking back to the beginning of a project and, and how you plan it and execute it? 
Absolutely. So the I think that's one of the reasons why the first clearance for a company always takes so much longer because initially you might think that after development and validation, the FDA clearance is just something that you do in, at the very end. But it's very important to take those certain considerations into account from the very beginning. So one thing is the FDA requires that you follow certain processes. So there's a software development lifecycle process and that you have procedures and a what's called a quality system in place to make sure that you follow all those recommended guidelines in how you go about acquiring data and then developing the software and validating it. So all these processes is something you have to get in place. But there's also even before you start developing the machine learning algorithm, you have to decide what the inputs and especially the outputs are of the model. And then you have to decide if the output is a continuous parameter or if it's a classification. And you, of course, want to pick something that the user, the healthcare provider or the user can make sense of and something that performs at a level as the, the current clinical practice performs. And you want to prove that and you design a study how you want to prove that. And, and that makes sense to present all of that to the FDA. And so they allow for something that's called a pre-submission where you can present what you're planning to do in your validation, clinical validation, and they give you feedback and tell you if you follow those plans, if that would address all of their concerns. And it's really good to get that feedback before you start an expensive clinical validation study and not find out about that afterwards when you can't change that anymore. So we typically engage with the FDA very early on. And we just start with these uh, machine learning models and we have found that they give very helpful advice. And yeah, I would, any, anyone who's trying something, I would encourage to try to get in contact as early as possible. How do you ensure that the technology your team develops will fit in with the clinical workflow and provide the right kind of assistance to doctors and patients? Yeah, this is, of course, very important because if the performance on the technical level is great, but if it doesn't fit in the workflow, of course, it will not be adopted. And it's it's actually very difficult because we have the vision that our technology might change the workflow or might enable people to do ultrasound that are not actually doing it today. And that's a big challenge because how do you test that and how do you make sure that this works? And so we do lots of interviews and usability testing with our users or proposed users. And then, as I said, during these studies where we evaluate the clinical performance, we also get, of course, a lot of feedback about how it fit in the workflow or not. And in fact, we maybe the last thing I want to mention is that even though we started out as a medical device company and the idea was to, the model, the business model was that we would take the device and give it to a provider and they would use it in their own practice with their own users. We found that because the users, this would require enough change of workflow that there was quite some resistance to make those changes and buy the device and make those changes. And we found that, so we pivoted our business model and we are now offering a full end-to-end -end service, which makes it very easy to integrate those taking ultrasound images in the workflow. And it's more similar to what they do today, because typically it's, for example, primary care physician who orders or cardiologist who orders an ultrasound image. 
and then it's all provided by some imaging center. And so we basically drop in replacement for the existing services. And that was our way to make the integration of the workflow as easy as possible. So by just saying, just refer the patient to us and we take care of the rest, including scheduling the patient, recording the images, getting a medical review, and then writing the report, like all of these things that you otherwise have to make sure that they work the same way with your product as they worked before you. You basically do all of this in-house and and provide the end-to-end service. And that is definitely a solution that works very well, but it, of course, requires to develop the necessary infrastructure in addition to the medical device. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? So I think one thing that worked well for us is, so it took quite a while to get from this first idea to developing the technology, then getting a proper product and having it tested and improving it and then having it cleared and then now figure out the details in the business model. And so so we have been at this at, I think, more than eight years and the world is changing very quickly. And so one thing that's important is that you address a big enough problem and you have some high-level thesis, like in, in our case, that giving medical imaging to more people at a lower cost and high quality will help to detect disease earlier. And so this thesis, we were very convinced it will stay true, even if the details of the how care is delivered will change over time. And so I think you have to be high level enough so that you're confident that five years later, when your device gets on the market, even with slightly changed world, your technology is still meaningful. So that's, I think, one of the most important things. I think if you address some incremental problem, and then it might be that five years later, that's not even a big problem anymore. And so I think there are lots of problems out there that are tackled by humans that where no technology existed to automate them, where with modern AI, you can now address some of those problems and finding something where machine learning is enabling technology and finding a problem that's big enough so that it's still relevant in in three to five years. Yeah, that's definitely helpful insight. Where do you see the impact of Caption Health in three to five years? We still have the same vision that we will bring medical imaging to more people and allow medicine to become more preventative and to detect disease earlier. So currently, it's often the case that you only go to a medical provider after you have problems. And there are certain diseases, for example, heart disease, when you have symptoms, it's typically pretty far along. And so it would be very beneficial if you could detect heart disease and other diseases earlier and current today this is often not how the system operates and it's often due to limitations right that device the diagnostics are too expensive to do in a preventative fashion and that you don't have enough experts to perform those diagnostics and i see the the system moving in a different direction that there's more so-called value-based care and so there are more providers that are actually trying to give the best possible care at the lowest possible cost. And so devices like ours that can allow you to get a lot of information through medical imaging at a fairly low cost with a low, without expensive experts can really help, in my opinion, to give more people access to early disease detection. 
This has been great. Killian, your team at Caption Health is doing some really interesting work for healthcare. I expect that the insights you share will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? So yeah, on our website, captionhealth.com, yeah, there we have videos and I think that that is good to get a start to get more information. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.